listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. It's the first Sunday in the season of Lent, and as is the case every year in the three-year lectionary cycle, we begin with the story of Jesus' time in the wilderness. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he had been baptized by John and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Jesus ate nothing at all during those days and when they were over he was famished. Forty days of fasting in which Jesus faces down the devil in a kind of epic and cosmic battle. What does that have to do with us? I mean, other than the fact that our rather more modest Lenten observances run for 40 days, what's the connection between our experience and his experience? A good deal, I'd actually want to say, but only if we back away from some of the ways in which we normally picture this story and maybe hear it anew. Typically in the paintings and drawings of the story, the face down between the two characters is presented as decidedly clear-cut, whether in orthodox iconography or medieval art or paintings of the Renaissance and the centuries that followed, or in the more current imagery in illustrations and in films and even that clip art stuff that's designed for church bulletin covers, it isn't hard to see who is the good guy and who is the bad. Jesus may, may look a bit worn and tired from his fasting, But in those presentations, not always. Sometimes he looks rather clean and fresh. The devil character often comes complete with horns and a tail. There's no mistaking him for anything but a diabolical villain and tempter. Confronting such a clearly evil character, how could Jesus do anything but refuse his temptations and push him away, right? The Christian tradition affirms that Jesus Christ is what? Fully human and fully divine. The Nicene Creed proclaims that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Uh, Christ who is God from God, light from light, of one being with the Father, could surely rebuff all temptation with little more than a flick of a finger, a blink of his eye. Yet the same creed proclaims this. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Incarnate, enfleshed, human, one of us, one with us, which means, among other things, that whatever spiritual clarity had come from 40 days of fasting and prayer, those days would have also left him truly famished, 
weakened, and even vulnerable. Now, put aside the images of a horned and tailed figure appearing at his side, trying to seduce him with these temptations of self-serving power. That figure is almost too easy to recognize and then reject. Imagine instead something closer to a steady, insistent voice, pressing subtly on those very human points of weakness and vulnerability. Both N.T. Wright and Robert Capon have wondered if it might not be best to imagine this struggle as being almost entirely internal. The devil's voice, suggests Bishop Wright, appears as a string of natural ideas in Jesus' own head. They are plausible, attractive, and make, as we would say, a lot of sense. You're hungry. You can eat. If you are what you think you are, the Son of God, you can easily end your hunger and your fast. Turn this stone into bread. Fill your hungry stomach. It's not an unreasonable suggestion. You are destined to be sovereign of the world. Isn't that what the angel Gabriel told your mother? You can have that right now. Just bend your knee and accept the power that I have in hand. You believe you're son of God, don't you? You could leap from the very heights of the temple and everyone, everyone will see as God's angels leap to save you. How could they possibly disbelieve your message if they witness that? Notice, too, how that tempting voice even quotes Scripture to justify the third temptation. Quotes from Psalm 91, parts of which we read tonight. This is a temptation that Scott Schauf characterizes as being tempted to engage a cross-avoiding spectacle. Put on a show and the cross becomes unnecessary, says that voice. Notice, too, that Jesus comes back at the tempter, not in a posture of debate or argument, not a reasoning it through, fighting it through, but simply by quoting the scriptures right back at it. One does not live by bread alone. Worship the Lord your God and serve only God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. It is what keeps his mind, his heart, his very self from falling off the mark. Greek word that is commonly translated sin in the New Testament is hamartia, hamartia, which means literally off the mark or missing the mark. What Jesus is facing down in the wilderness is the temptation to settle for that which will take him off the mark or short of the mark. You know what? The same temptation plays on us as well, perhaps not quite as dramatically, but it plays on us. Every moment, N.T. Wright observes, God calls us to know, love, and worship. 
and thereby to find and celebrate our genuine humanity and reflect God's image in the world. That's what we were meant to be. That's what what it means to be creatures fashioned in the image of God, to find and celebrate our genuine humanity as creatures formed in that image and also creatures formed for worship, for knowledge, for love of God. But, Bishop Wright adds, we so easily lower our gaze, shorten our sights, settle for second best or worse. Sin, like a misfired arrow, drops short of the call to true humanness, to bearing and reflecting God's image. Anyone who's ever used a bow and arrow, maybe it was, you know, at summer camp as a kid or as a counselor at camp and suddenly you find yourself assigned to teach archery, you know how little it takes for an arrow to miss the mark, right? You pull back, you close that one eye, you do your absolute best to steady your stance, and you let go. But just a little bit of difference in your stance or in how you release the bow or your aim, your focus, it makes all the difference as to where that arrow actually sails. It's not a lot of movement that takes it off target, off the mark. Understood rightly, sin can actually be an awful lot like that. Not a lot of difference, but it's off mark. The person who has cultivated a destructive drinking problem probably can't tell you when, sure, you can pour me just one more, became this unquenchable thirst for more always more, no matter the cost. They can't tell you when it shifted from an extra glass of wine to unquenchable. When did that apparently harmless hour spent playing an online game become an online casino game, become a pattern that actually lands somebody in soul-crushing debt? The so-called innocent flirtation with the neighbor or the person who lives down the hall in the college or the work colleague, when did that become an extramarital affair? When was the moment when the military guards in Guantanamo Bay, I mean, military people who had kind of committed themselves to a defense of their country, a patriotism that they believed in, when did they begin to see torture and the humiliation of other people as justifiable, as a way of keeping order? When did a dutiful and patriotic German military bureaucrat named Adolf Eichmann ceased to see actual people in all of the papers and the numbers he shuffled, papers that sent tens of thousands to their deaths in concentration camps. On account of Adolf Eichmann's utter inability or unwillingness to recognize any responsibility for his actions, He was just doing his job. He was just being a good bureaucrat, just serving his nation. 
He couldn't take responsibility, and so Hannah Arendt subtitled her famous book on the Eichmann war crimes trial, The Banality of Evil. He was a bureaucrat. But when did he go off mark? The gaze is lowered. The sights are shortened. The mark is missed. And the call to true humanness to bearing and reflecting God's image is obscured. It is what the devil wants Jesus to do, to lower his gaze from the vocation to which he's called, the vocation he's begun to own there in light of his baptism and during his time in the wilderness. The tempter even uses scripture as the justification. Yet, as the biblical scholar Ruth Ann Rees insists, Scripture must be read rightly in light of God's nature and the life envisioned for God's people. Such a life is rooted in God's narrative of deliverance and a response of faithful obedience to God rather than in self-reliance, which is the devil's story. Right reading of God's narrative roots us in a response of faithful obedience to God But the devil's reading, the devil's story, the devil's lie is one that says self-reliance is the way. Self-reliance, that's the lie that says I'm self-determining. I can do it my way. I have no real need for anything higher than my own self, nothing bigger than my own categories. Even in his hunger and his weakness, it is a lie that Jesus recognizes And refutes. And best as we're able, so must we. I mean, that's part of our task, our calling as the people of God. Speaking truthfully with one another and to our God, we must, like Jesus, recognize and refute the lie. Finding the courage to both see and confess our hungers, bodily hungers, spiritual hungers, emotional hungers, mental hungers for more the kind of more that destroys. Our weaknesses, our lowered gaze, our shortened sights. Like Jesus, we must recognize the lie, which is why every year, at this time, as we enter this season, we tell this story and are called to remember who we are and whose we are. In the name of the triune God who creates, who redeems, and who sanctifies. Amen. You've been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church, or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.